Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. You made it to Friday. Ready to recap what happened? I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Welcome to the end of the week, where we catch you up on the biggest state and local stories that you might have missed but need to know about. Stories like these. Chicago City Council is one step closer to paying tipped workers minimum wage. A recent disaster declaration has now paved the way for the city to offer reduced property taxes. Many restaurant owners and service employees aren't happy about it. A wage increase for tipped workers. The city of Chicago's 2024 budget is more than half a billion dollars out of balance. Paying bail to get out of jail while awaiting trial is now a thing of the past. That means money is no longer a factor in whether someone charged with a crime should be released. Let's meet our panel this week to help break down the top stories. Jacoby Cochran is the host of CityCast Chicago, a daily podcast and newsletter. Mick Dumkey is a Block Club investigative editor and reporter. And joining us for the first time on the recap is Lee John Greco, government and politics reporter for Crane's Chicago Business. Let's dive in. Jacoby, cash bail officially ended on Monday in Illinois. How big of a deal is this? I mean, it's a huge deal under a traditional cash bail system that Pretty much the rest of America is still under. Uh, If a person is, you know, accused of crimes, they can pay to be released ahead of their trial. But often for pettier crimes, low level, nonviolent crimes, uh, that means that people who are low income, uh, a lot of black and brown people end up sitting in jail. It ends up becoming a debtor's prison as people wait months and months to to sometimes even get those those first or second trials. Um, This is really important because people have fought for this for years and it was passed as a part of the Illinois Safety Act back in January 2021 but a Kankakee court judge immediately uh, kind of filed some grievances with it. People have tested its constitutionality for years and earlier this summer it was upheld by the Illinois Supreme Court. Uh, What people should know is that doesn't mean as somebody who wants a divestment from the carceral criminal legal system that doesn't mean people are not going to be held in jails and in prison still that's still up to judges discretion which yeah. throughout this entire fight i've always reminded people isn't necessarily a historically fair and just system itself yeah. but that does mean judges will be given more um uh, not only discretion but hopefully more guidelines more training on how to go about uh deciding on whether or not a person should be uh, kept behind bars as they wait um uh wait for their trial and that will go in effect across all of Illinois counties as of earlier this week. Yeah, that's an important distinction there, Jacoby. And, and clearly the, the Cook County public defender thinks that this is a radical change, too. Let's listen to what Sharon Mitchell had to say. The decision about whether somebody is going to be incarcerated pre-trial is probably one of the most important decisions that can happen in a criminal case. It's probably second to only straight innocence or guilt. Mick, how did court hearings around the state seem to go this week? I mean, were there major problems reported anywhere? Well, it sounds like it was uneven, ranging from some places that essentially ignored the new law, the new rules, uh, to places like Cook County, which have been preparing for it for a long time. And I suspect that'll happen for a while as some people try to get used to it. There's been so much hysteria around this uh, law and these changes. I think it's important for people to understand um, a couple things, as Jacoby mentioned. Um, First of all, that uh, nothing stops a judge from saying, look, this person's a public safety threat. 
and we're going to find a reason to keep them behind bars until they go on trial. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing, of course, is that these are all people who are have not had a trial yet. So this is before their trial even starts. And the third thing is that under the old system, not only were some people held in jail um, for very low-level crimes. I mean, one time I witnessed someone in Cook County Bond Court who'd been sitting in jail for stealing six bars of soap worth about $22 and uh, just couldn't afford the the bail amount um, to get mm-hmm. out. Um, and on the, the flip side of that is that there are people who have been accused of violent crimes who've been able to come up with the money to post, you know, to bail themselves out. Right. So um, the, the old money money system that a lot of people are saying, oh, this is going to end, it's going to, the sky's going to fall. Mm-hmm. Um, it was unfair and very imperfect in its own way, too. Yeah, a lot of sheriffs and state's attorneys, I mean, from around the state were opposed to this. So would you say that some of that opposition has quieted down? Some of it has quieted down. I think that you've heard some people like um, Bob Berlin, the state's attorney in DuPage County, saying, look, I don't like this, but it's the law. Our job as professionals is to uh, follow the law, to do what the law says. So I think most people have you know, said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to find a way to make this work because we have to. I'm sure there's still going to be people out there who are fighting it. I mean, we live in an era where you know, some people yeah. say the sky's blue and other people say it's purple. And uh, so I would expect no less with this particular <laughs> law. <laughs> and Lee, yeah. Illinois is the only state to completely eliminate cash bail. And that was covered by uh, a lot of national media, as we know. Uh, Governor Pritzker, he's getting a lot of attention for these progressive policies that he's pushed through, isn't he? Yeah, he is. And, and something else that I noticed uh, to Mick's point is just the hysteria that has surrounded this. Um, you know, that, of course... Cash bail emerged as a major issue when Pritzker was running for re-election. Um, and I feel like a lot of that hysteria has continued on. Uh, I was at a, a public safety meeting a few weeks ago in the Ukrainian village, and you know, residents have seen crime go up there, uh, you know, violent crime. And what is so interesting to me is I think because of um, you know, Illinois GOP raising this as a huge issue during the governor's campaign. A lot of people think that cash bail was somehow already in place. Um, And that was something that I noticed at that particular public safety meeting, people blaming uh, the rise in crime in, you know, Chicago neighborhoods that traditionally hadn't seen violent crime Mm -hmm. on cash bail, um, which obviously, as we're noting, uh, only started this week. Jacoby, I mean, could you see the end of cash bail being this this feather in the governor's cap next summer at the the Democratic convention? Of course. I mean, that's one of the things he uh, campaigned and and ran on and and supported. Um, And and a thing I think people should continue to, um, I think, challenge, especially local journalists, too, is I saw this week a few people publishing stories about here are the first few people let out as cash bail has ended. And, and as long as we don't participate in this hysteria, we call out misinformation where it is and realize that overwhelmingly, um, while this system is, is imperfect, the goal is to make sure that people are not just sitting in jails because the consequence of a weekend, a week, a month, a few months, a year sitting uh, inside of Cook County um, is your family's health, your livelihood, your ability to, to seek employment. Um, it, it really has a dire impact on people's lives. And so we should continue to, to make sure we're looking at this with, with a lot of context. Yeah. Over to you again, Lee. Mayor Johnson moved closer to fulfilling one of his campaign promises this week. What can you tell us about the the compromise that was reached for tipped restaurant workers? 
Yeah, so this uh, fight kind of emerged earlier this summer, a group called One Fair Wage, which has been lobbying to increase the tip minimum wage all over the country, got involved in this. Um, for those just who don't really understand how tipped wages work, you know, for employees at restaurants and uh, places like that, um, there are two kinds of wages. There's like the standard minimum wage, which in the city of Chicago stands at uh, $15.80 an hour for employers with more than 21 employees, and then it's $15 an hour uh, for smaller employers. So, um, you know, folks like us who are working full time um, at, you know, a place like Reset, you should be getting uh, that minimum wage. Uh, but then there is a lower minimum wage uh, around $9 uh, for tipped workers like restaurant workers. And the employer is supposed to make up the difference between you know, that nine and $15 figure if the employees uh, like a server uh, don't get enough tips to meet that. Um, and so of course, you know, for a lot of servers who might work at, you know, let's say a linear or something, it's really easy to make up that difference on their own. Um, they might make, you know, a far higher wage, right. um, but you know, one fair wage uh, points out that that's not always the truth with a lot of restaurants. Um, that, you know, there are non-compliant restaurant owners, uh, and also that, you know, this tipping system can lead to things like sexual harassment. You know, I've been a waitress before and definitely kind of had to just smile in order to get your tips, no one, no matter what happens. Um, and so initially, uh, the mayor's progressive allies, um, uh, like Carlos Ramirez Rosa and alderwoman Jesse Fuentes, um, introduced this bill. Yeah. And originally they were going to raise the tip wage in two years, but they decided to go with a five-year ramp, um, five-year phase-in rather, uh, instead of that steeper climb. Mm -hmm. yeah, the Illinois Restaurant Association has been opposing the change since the beginning. I want to play a little bit of what Sam Toya, who heads the group, had to say this week. I believe the amended ordinance reflects the best possible position between our members and the city, giving the restaurant industry time to adjust to the new financial reality that operators will endure once the tip credit is fully eliminated. So it still needs to be approved by the full city council, as we've, we've mentioned, but it sounds like the Restaurant Association thinks it's a done deal. I mean, do you think, Mick, that we're going to see prices go up even at restaurants? Well, I think, we're, I think we're, well, we're going to see prices go up at restaurants, sure, because of Even this. Even more, I yeah. should say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, probably, um, but it's hard to say. I mean, uh, restaurants have been saying that prices have been going up for some time, well before this. And uh, some consumers, some uh, customers who like to go out, they've uh, found a way to keep going out and, you know, splurging on a meal out now and then or or regularly depending on their habits and i suspect that'll continue to happen um uh, but listen as consumers we're all used to getting hit with higher prices and um it's sometimes it's true and sometimes it's uh, i think it's just a, a line that we're fed by not just restaurants but other businesses oh my costs are going up so therefore i have to pass it on to you so mm. I, I just think we're gonna have to see exactly how it plays out what kind of impact do you think that this could have on, on the restaurant scene in Chicago, Jacoby? I'm in, I'm interested to find out, like everybody else, there were there are plenty of restaurants who support this. Plenty of restaurants who are already who are already doing it um, yeah. at the the city's minimum wage, and, and you know that every time we have this conversation, it ends up pitting the worker against the employer, 
And I'm always stand with the worker, right? I'm always stand with, you know, the fair minimum wage. And as somebody who is with this law without it is probably still going to to pay tip as best I can um, whenever I'm, I'm, you know, inside of a restaurant. Uh, my hope is that it doesn't lead to people getting less hours and getting um, getting laid off. That That's my hope. But it, it is likely to happen in some places probably. Yeah. And, and diners, I mean, do you think they might tip less? As a result, I wonder how many people are going to be paying attention to this and is, are going to be aware. I think we are so tipping is so ingrained in our culture That's true. Uh, that we've allowed it to now just be built into every it's register at every single place you visit at this Getting point. Getting a little iPad turned toward you. Exactly. Right? Um, Lee, the uh, Illinois Restaurant Association did propose an alternate wage hike plan. What did that look like? Yes. Yeah, so that was proposed uh, last week, uh, you know, by Sam Toya. He was meeting with the Black Caucus last week as well. Really, kind of as a last-ditch effort. I think he knew that, you know, progressives had the votes for this, so he was just trying to come up with anything that would, you know, try to show the uh, Restaurant Association that he was trying. But basically what that worked out to was it would raise the tip minimum wage to $20, which probably is a little bit confusing for people. They think, well, $20 an hour, that's more than the standard 15, uh, but really what it did was just raise it so that essentially tip workers still have to make up that difference. Um, so it's not as if the restaurant would have to pay more, pay like more of a base wage. It was just that, you know, instead of uh, being guaranteed that difference by your employer between nine and $15, the employer would have to make up the difference between nine and $20. Um, now, again, as I mentioned before, there are non-compliant restaurants and Toya's uh, compromise here was, well, we're just going to raise the fines for those bad actors and that will guarantee that, uh, you know, they make up the difference there. Um, and obviously that didn't go through. Uh, Bennett Lawson introduced an ordinance on that last week and it got killed. <laughs> so, mm. um, yeah, that was kind of the IRA's uh, last, last effort there. I want to stick with city council for just another few minutes here. Uh, a new ordinance was introduced to prevent uh, gentrification around the Obama Center, Jacoby. And I know that you live near there, so do. why don't I toss that to you? I mean, this fight has been ongoing since it was announced to be in Jackson Park some seven years ago now. I mean, the time is, is really picking up, and now we're almost a year and a half, two years away from it opening. Uh, both the neighborhoods of Woodlawn and South Shore have tried to secure housing ordinance. And back in 2021, there was a smaller scale housing ordinance approved for Woodlawn, but South Shore neighbors were sort of left still trying to fight. And now the, the new Fifth Ward Alderperson has introduced the South Shore Housing Preservation Ordinance, uh, which will try to do a few things. Uh, one, ensure equitable development and slow displacement with things like using all city vacant lots for affordable housing sites, um, expand tenant protections with something like the uh, tenant advocacy pilot, just trying to centralize housing protections. There's no place you can go right now to mm -hmm. find out who are the bad actors, who are the bad landlords, where you can go to sort of get all of your, your renters' rights and homeowners' rights answered. Um, preserve and increase supply of affordable housing, protect homeowners, um, and then designate a lot in Woodlawn. Uh, you can read through the 54-page ordinance, but the goal really is to protect the South Shore neighborhood, which, let's set the context. Right now, the most amount of or the highest concentration of people with affordable housing vouchers live in South Shore. Mm -hmm. The number one neighborhood for investment uh, investors buying up properties, South Shore. We talk about a high concentration of low-income renters and homeowners, South Shore. Mm -hmm. And so this neighborhood 
has already been asking for decades for their business corridors to be redeveloped, uh, for their streets to be redeveloped, for uh, mortgage prices and, and rent prices to sort of be held stable. But with something like the Obama Presidential Center, which even advocates understand will bring a lot of investment, mm -hmm. will bring a lot of attention for the neighborhood, but that should not come at the cost of people who have lived through decades of, of displacement, who've lived through decades uh, of disinvestment. I'm interested to see how Mayor Brandon Johnson uh, position himself around an ordinance that is likely to change in the coming weeks as things will, will probably be knocked off in the same ways we saw with the Woodline Housing Ordinance. And when asked, does he support it full sale? You know, he definitely said, I support some form mm -hmm. of housing protections in South Shore. Uh, that, that tune really changes when you when you get to City Hall, right? You can't make that apparently that happens? the yeah. promises as sort of with the same amount of gusto on the campaign trail. But but this is something years in the making and, and it would ultimately be a model potentially for how do we reinvest in neighborhoods and how do we allow major development to coexist with long-term renters and homeowners. Cook County property. In yeah, go ahead, Lee. I was just going to say this is a very fascinating national story as well because Obviously, the optics of, you know, the presidential library for the first black president, you know, potentially displacing people um, is, you know, not great for optics uh, for Obama and for his legacy. So I think, as Jacoby said, you know, this is really going to be something to watch and, you know, what kind of model will it be for uh, similar developments? I mean, his response was back in 2017 did not sit well with organizers. He said, when they asked him to sign a community benefits agreement, he said, you know, well, who ultimately am I signing this with? Who do these organizers represent the community? Well, these organizers have gone out and gotten something on an electoral ballot and 90% of the community who voted came back from those precincts and said, yes, we want protection. So obviously the members of the South Shore CBA and the Woodlawn CBA did speak for the community. So th this didn't have to become mm. a housing ordinance and a law. This could have been a community benefits agreement years ago, but um, a, a law would offer more concrete protections than a CBA. I mean, listen, uh, obviously, President Obama is a uh, masterful politician as well as a former community organizer. So he knew what he was doing there mm -hmm. and was trying to build in as much uh, wiggle room for his library and, and that uh, team putting that in as possible. I just want to note too, you know, this is happening in South Shore. The context is all these different crises we're having in Chicago right now around housing, ranging yeah. from homelessness, affordable housing shortages, and obviously the, uh, you know, the migrant and asylum seekers um, emergency needs as well, which I know we're going to talk about a bit. But I think that's another reason why what's going on in South Shore is, is so important. So, Lee, last week the city estimated its its budget gap at more than half a billion dollars. This week the mayor's meeting with Alderman about the budget. Any hint from him on, on new revenue sources to fill the gap? No, if he has any, I haven't found them yet. <laughs> I'm asking that same question. Uh, I feel like the only, uh, you know, revenue sources uh, that he has nixed so far um, are, of course, the uh, property tax increase. Um, and then I also spoke with Jason Lee, uh, who's the mayor's senior advisor, and asked him if a service tax um, might be brought up in this budget cycle. Um, and so there's there's no service tax right now in Chicago on, you know, 
services like haircuts and health clubs. Um, Lori Lightfoot brought up a service tax uh, back in 2019 that would be on higher end services like attorneys and accountants. Um, but ultimately, in order for the mayor to do that, they have to go to the Illinois General Assembly first. Um, so when I asked Jason, hey, is, is this on the table? You guys got to find the money somewhere. And services are a growing part of the economy. Um, and he basically said, you know, yeah, that's been a conversation for a while, um, but we have to go to the General Assembly first. Um, they're in veto session right now. Not that you couldn't go to them in veto session, um, but it appears that we're not going to see a service tax uh, for FY24. Mm. Um, so at that point, it leaves us with, okay, if you're not going to raise or introduce those taxes, what are you left with? Um, and that uh, they're planning on finding cost savings and that there are efficiencies. Um, now, of course, anybody who's worked for a company, when you hear the word efficiencies, that's not really good. That usually means cuts um, and personnel. Right. And yeah, they make a huge part of this budget right now. Um, you know, those contracted uh, wages and everything um, are a major driver of the deficit as well. Um, so I'll be interested to see, you know, if the administration proposes any cuts to public employees. They have mentioned that there are vacancies there. But last week when I talked with Chicago Federation of Labor President Bob Ryder, he said, well, we already made a lot of cuts to vacancies in 2020. So right. not quite sure where we'll find more. All right, I want to switch gears to some national stories that impact Chicago. The Biden administration is fast-tracking work permits for some asylum seekers. What are the details, Mick? Well, um, for about almost half a million people from Venezuela who are currently in the United States, um, and some sort of pro, you know, some some place along the process of seeking asylum or uh, trying to stay here. Essentially, the Biden administration this week said you get 18 months here of a of a bit of a respite, and um, you can stay here legally for the next year and a half if you weren't already. And uh, most importantly, I think for the local conversations are they have eligibility now to work, um, to apply for work permits. And that's been a real issue here. And, and um, it comes after pressure from uh, mayor and governor, not just here in Illinois, but New York. New right? York and, and some other places too. The, you know, uh, New York and Chicago front and center. Um, I mean, we think, you know, we've had about 14,000 people coming here um, from the southern border over the last year plus. New York's had more than 100,000. So yeah. it's really become a humanitarian issue and a big political issue in New York, just like here. And yeah, so you're right, uh, Sasha, the, uh, you know, our local officials have said, listen, people want to work. They're, you know, don't want to just be sitting around shelters, obviously don't want to just be sitting around police stations. Uh, people have been staying at O'Hare. In order to help people help themselves, they need to be able to work. They need to be able to work legally. If they aren't, um, people are going to take it upon themselves to try to work in the underground economy mm -hmm. or, or worse. And so um, this is really a big announcement. It was uh, you know, well-received, like you said, by the governor, by the mayor, and, and by people on the front lines who have been working trying to help uh, the migrants yeah. and asylum seekers. You know, Mick brings up a good point, Jacoby. What do you think? Do you think that this will give them some protection so that they're not exploited or they don't have to work in the underground economy? That's what the hope is, but, I mean, the city is 
has, like you said, such a patchwork network of resources at this point um, that a big fear is people getting lost in the shadows. Uh, we talked with Manny Ramos from Block Club and, and Alma Campos from Southside Weekly on CityCast today. And one of Alma's concerns was uh, she was meeting with a few organizations and all of the people she was talking with were uh, Colombian. And so she was saying, you know, how far will this this temporary protected status go? Mm-hmm. Uh, how will we make sure we're protecting people, not just the, the vast majority who are coming from Venezuela, uh, but from other countries uh, as well who are coming um, throughout, throughout Central uh, and Latin America? And so um, at this point, the hope is that we can provide a fast track. Then I also saw a story a few weeks ago that um, a a few individuals weren't allowed to go back into their temporary shelter because they had found work. Mm. And so are the guidelines in order to make sure that people have the necessary time to transition from finding work to then finding housing? Because if any of us have been looking for a job and trying to get a new place, you know, those things don't happen just one after the other. Oh, for sure. And and Mick, as we mentioned, you know, temporary protective status. Is Biden's expansion of of TPS TPS status, is, is it getting pushback from Republicans? Well, sure. I, you know, I think it's been reported that uh, one of some of the hesitancy from the administration, the Biden administration to actually take this step or to be even bolder uh, was because of fear of pushback. And obviously it's an election year next year. Already they're starting to count votes and worried that they're going to look soft on on immigration. Uh, you know, to which I would say, not that they asked me, but I mean, you're not going to get the votes from people who are yelling, build the wall anyway. What are you worried about politically? More importantly, we've got a real humanitarian crisis you need to address here. Don't worry, Mick, I asked. Well, I think it was also (laughs) a concern, not just politically, but when I spoke to Senator Dick Durbin about this the other week, I asked, hey, you know, where is this extension of the TPS? And he said that the Biden administration's worry was that it would invite or encourage more migration, uh, which I think is where, as Mick, you mentioned, that sort of 18-month timeline comes in. They are trying to do a little bit of both. They're trying to make sure people can work, but also not, um, you know, encourage even more people to come over the border. Well, Lee, uh, I'm hoping that you can get us up to speed on a story that your Crane's colleague, Justin Lawrence, reported on first. Uh, it's about the company was hired to build the winterized tent base camps that are going to be housing migrants. Yeah, so this is really controversial because uh, the contractor Garda World Federal Services um, got this $29 million contract to build the base camps. Um, And this is the same contractor that moved migrants from Florida. Um, And so they are kind of more than double dipping here. Um, It's unknown at this point how many tents are going to be stood up and if the company is going to do any work beyond putting them up. Uh, But, you know, the reason besides them double dipping on this, that this is controversy, is Denver actually backed away from a similar contract um, after finding out a history of alleged abuses of migrants. Um, There was a case at one Canadian facility where migrants went on a hunger strike Mm -hmm. to protect to uh, protest conditions there. Um, So I think it'll be really interesting if, you know, people in Chicago, especially maybe, you know, are any of the mayor's progressive allies in council going to bring that up. And it also, to me, seems like this um, doesn't jive with Mayor Johnson's promise or at least, uh, you know, his want to get more community based uh, organizations involved in housing migrants. But then on the other hand, I mean, how many Chicago or Illinois organizations exist that could put up 
these giant tents. Um, so I think it, it puts the city in a little bit of a difficult position here because you want to move migrants out of police stations, which also have had allegations of abuse, but now you're going to put them in tents from a contractor that also has allegations. Mm. It's like a no-win situation here. Yeah, I mean, we're known for winter here. We're not known for building tents for people to live in, at least until the last few years. Now there's tents all over the city, um, uh, unofficially, that people have have put up to, to you know live in during our housing crises here. I haven't talked to anyone who thinks this is a good idea, um, not just the recipient of the contract, but the idea uh, that this is a solution to mm -hmm. uh, this migrant housing crisis. Obviously, everyone wants to have them out of the police stations, out of sleeping on the floor at O'Hare. That's not a good situation. And, uh, you know, everyone I've spoken to, both officials as well as residents of Chicago, you know, they're, they're sympathetic to uh, Mayor Johnson and the administration not having a lot of good available options. But uh, I know talking to people in city council, there is a feeling from a lot of alders, including people who are aligned with Mayor Johnson, that not enough has been done to explore other options. And mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, the administration would counter and say, well, the clock is ticking. We've got to do something. We can't go through another winter with people, you know, crowded in these police stations. More buses are expected to come from the southern border. Um, but again, a lot of people in and outside of uh, elected office are saying there's just got to be a better way other than building refugee camps. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm very yeah. sympathetic as well, and I understand that Illinois at large also has a contract uh, with this security firm. But something I was saying earlier today is you're going to have to make hard decisions that essentially piss everybody off, somebody off. The least you could do is be upfront about it finding out that a contract for $30 million has been signed after the fact, after when when this was announced two weeks ago, there was no announcement and still is no announcement in the contract of, of timetable right. of, of where they're going to be, not only in Cook County, but Kane, Lake, McHenry, DuPage, uh, Will County, uh, and, and how long they're expected to be there with the contract running through, I think, September 12th of 2024. The least you could do is come out in, up front and say, we know that this... Uh, this organization, this this company has a, a controversial past. We know you know that because you, your administration sent emails when the Denver article came out. So you could at least be transparent with us and upfront. Hmm. Yeah, and I think council members have been complaining about this administration not being transparent enough. Like when they had the uh, briefings on the migrant response, uh, I think it was like a week or two ago, um, a lot of the you know alders were saying it was super short, um, there was no time for questions. Basically, the administration just got a couple of alders through in little chunks uh, so that it didn't have to be public either. Um, and that, you know, they feel like they're in the dark. Um, and Mick, to your point, uh, yeah, there there are already people within city council, even on Johnson's side, who, who don't like this. Uh, Alderman Vasquez, who heads up the Committee on Immigration, um, you know, said that he would rather uh, have migrants housed in, you know, basically existing facilities, like it, not the shelters, but, you know, actual buildings versus, you know, these these giant tents. Hmm. Let's turn to a couple of environmental stories here. Chicago's taking chemical manufacturer Monsanto to court for allegedly contaminating Lake Michigan and the Chicago River. What are the details, Jacoby? Um, 
I mean, this story is something we've seen across the nation as other states and cities have sued Monsanto. Uh, these PCB, these PCBs were manufactured throughout the 20s uh, in everything from electrical equipment, manufacturing equipment, uh, down to consumer products. It was found out um, after a, a really big poisoning incident, I believe in Japan, uh, that, that this was toxic to human beings. And in 19, the late 1970s, this was banned both in the country and internationally. But you still saw companies producing these. You still see them in uh, equipment around this city and other places. Uh, and that contaminant has uh, continued to get into Chicago waterways, airways, and the city is responsible for cleaning that up. The timing of this is not, uh, you know, some coincidence. Pennsylvania recently, as earlier uh, as early as this month, was awarded or agreed to a settlement of $100 million with Monsanto. At the end of last year, Oregon agreed to a $700 million uh, settlement. And so mm. there's clearly money uh, on the other side of this if, yeah. you know, this goes through the court system and a settlement is to be found here. And so I, I see what the Johnson administration is doing here. You asked Lee earlier, where is he going to find revenue? Maybe in some lawsuits against companies that ha have already in, in other cases said, you know, I don't know if they, if the, the, uh, Details of those settlements say they took responsibility. You know, some settlements, I think, like ComEd, for example, says, you know, I don't I'm not saying I did anything. I'm just going to pay this money. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly uh, how this will end. Uh, but it is something that is, yeah. is highly carcinogenic and impacts uh, people to this day across the city. Uh, Lee, Mayor Johnson joined environmental activists this week to announce results from an environmental assessment. What did they find out? Yeah, so um, they found out over a dozen neighborhoods on the southwest South and West Side, um, you know, live with the brunt of pollution. Uh, it's interesting. I think it was uh, WTTW's Heather Tyrone tweeted out a, a picture of where pollution is in the city. And, you know, sort of the joke was every map of Chicago is the same map of Chicago. Uh, so similar mm -hmm. to, you know, where you find disinvestment, um, you know, it's always the South and West Sides that get hit the hardest by it. Um, and, you know, it's the North truth. Side, it is, yeah. Um, uh, and so this study is going to inform an ordinance that will be created this year, um, and it's supposed to overhaul the city's zoning laws that would affect industrial developments. Um, so a few of the proposals that are in the works are um, requiring a cumulative impact assessment every three years, um, you know, an air quality ordinance, and then, you know, consider reforming, as they said, fines for any violations of that Um and uh, Johnson, the one thing he wouldn't commit to this week is uh, restarting the Department of the Environment. Um, again, that's something I've been watching as I go through the budget. Yeah. It's something that Johnson promised on the campaign trail, along with these other progressive social reforms like treatment, not trauma. And I just wonder, like, will he have? of the money in this year's budget to start that because um obviously this is a priority um and it you know should help some of those neighborhoods that have you know had a history of disinvestment and therefore pollution all right we got a couple more national stories with chicago connections lee the democratic national committee picked a couple of chicagoans to head up next summer's convention who are they 
Yeah, so um, Christy George, uh, she's going to be the DNC executive director. Um, most recently, she was assistant deputy governor uh, for budget and the economy. Uh, and she also led Illinois' reimagining vehicles act and that was an incentive program for electric vehicles um, and then also kiana barrett is going to be the senior advisor for the dnc convention here in chicago and uh, she's worked on strategic development for the developer sterling bay she also has a pretty diverse resume you know with nonprofits. she's worked with heartland alliance uh, she also knows local politics she worked in the fourth ward office and then, of course, uh, Rainbow Push Coalition and Congressional Black Caucus. Um, so I think both of them are going to bring uh, a lot of experience at both the state, local and federal level. Um, and I think, as I mentioned in my article, you know, these conventions, they are huge spectacles now. Uh, we don't really go to watch a convention because uh, we're interested in who the nominee is going to be, especially this year when we have an incumbent. Um, I think unless something crazy happens, mm -hmm. um, it's going to be Joe Biden. But uh, I think the real challenge for these executives is going to be handling the optics of the convention. Um, you know, right before we went to break, of course, we were talking about the growing migrant crisis. And I think that's going to be something that yeah. national outlets, particularly more of the right wing conservative outlets, are going to focus on. They'll say, hey, here's this you know, huge gathering of Democrats. But look, they can't even handle this migrant crisis. That's their fault. So um, how the committee handles that and works with the city, I think, is going to be yeah. something to watch. It's going to be front and center next summer. That is for sure. Uh, Mick, there was another Chicagoan who was named to an important position this week. Tell us what's happening with Penny Pritzker and remind us who Penny is. Who is Penny Pritzker? I asked the... Um, <laughs> Sounds like the title of a book. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. Uh, former Commerce Secretary under President Obama uh, and uh, brother of our governor, the aforementioned governor. Uh, so... President Biden has named Penny Pritzker as an envoy to help Ukraine with its economic rebuilding um, after the war. Uh, you know, it's interesting that this is, he made this announcement as, of course, uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky's been in Washington trying to lobby Congress and uh, leaders in D.C. for more support, more funding for their effort and getting somewhat of a mixed reaction. There's a lot of weariness, especially from Surprise, surprise, Republicans, uh, skeptical of everything that uh, anybody on the other side does. And um, so the fight is not over for more funding. And obviously, uh, there's still a horrific war going on in Ukraine as well. All right. I know this is a sore spot for a lot of listeners, but I'm going to be the one to bring <laughs> up the bears. Now we're really getting down no. to it here. Now we're getting down to it here, the nitty gritty, because our beloved bears made headlines this week for something other than last Sunday's loss against Tampa, though. So fill us in on the drama, Jacoby. I would rather talk about polychlorinated biphenyls <laughs> than talk about what's going on at Hallis Hall right now. Uh, this week, not only did the bears see Allen Williams, the defensive coordinator, resign, on a very bizarre day because it seems that a lot of players, a lot of the media were in the dark. You had rumors swirling on Twitter and other social media outlets uh, that the FBI raided uh, Williams' home, that they raided Hallis Hall, and you had Bears as well as Williams' attorney pushing back against that. All they've given right now and all he's given is that uh, he is leaving for, for health reasons and to be with his family. Um, but that means uh, Ibra Flus will, will now, alongside the, the other defensive 
coaches take over the Bears' defense, which, I mean, it's not like it was looking good in these first two games. Still can't stop the run. <laughs> Third down looks atrocious. We ain't getting no interceptions. Look like we might get some more sacks. Either. Yeah, yeah, not getting good against the pass either. But also, you had Justin Fields giving two very different but two very spirited press conferences, the first in which you know he's talking about overthinking on the field, feels like he he's doing too much out there. He's not being allowed to play his game. I mean, when he was playing his game, which I wonder if that's what he thinks last year was, you know, he was putting up the second <laughs> best rushing uh, season in the history by a quarterback. And then on the other end, he looked like one of every of the other 46 quarterbacks the Bears have had since we won a Super Bowl last, which is to say not a How franchise quarterback. How long has that been? You know, we only coming up on 40 years okay. in, in the next couple of years. I just wanted to make sure I, I had the right number in my head. And all that on top of the fact that we got to see the recently Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs uh, in one of the hardest places to play in the National Football League uh, in Kansas City. And so uh, the Bears got a lot on their play right now. My thoughts are uh, I do think the coaching is limiting Justin Fields. They need to design a more Jalen Hurts, Lamar Jackson type offense, sort of give in to his abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the Bears front office has never really shown that. And the coaches aren't attached to him in the same way the last coaches weren't attached to Mr. Bisky and the last coaches weren't attached to the guy before that. So, uh, it you know, uh, we're probably looking at 0-3, but hey, Bad football will still be at, be at Soldier Field this Bears. weekend with Megan Rapino. So you can go see some football at Soldier Field. You know what was amazing? <laughs> last week, I don't think a single Chicago team won a game. The Cubs got swept. Mm-hmm. The White Sox have pretty much been swept since, like, June. The Sky playoff hopes sky, were done the sky, by the, the Aces. Sky Here's Mick ousted. bringing it down even lower. I mean, even, yeah, just, yeah. We're, our job here, Sasha, is to speak the truth. <laughs> just speaking the truth. Only the truth here on the on the recap. Uh, let me uh, do a quick hit here with you, Lee, because uh, i got to steer the conversation over to McHenry County because their state's attorney made news, too. What's going on? Yeah, sure. Um, and also, before I get to that, I am a Bills fan. I'm a native Buffalonian. Oh, so, right. on one hand, y'all I look feel like Gemini's. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, but yeah, uh, back to the news in McHenry County. Um, so, uh, McHenry County uh, wants to make pot dispensaries uh, have a warning of mental health risks. Um, so, they say that they're the first in the country that will have these rules. Um, that basically, it'll be a similar warning to what's on, you know. Um, pack of cigarettes and that sort of thing. And, you know, again, non-compliant businesses are going to face um, fraud suits uh, from the state's attorney, uh, Patrick Kennelly. Um, and the reason why this matters is because um, we're actually not really sure about all the effects of pot uh, because it's hard to research because you can't get federal money from it, like federal grants, because uh, marijuana is still illegal at mm-hmm. the federal level. Um, so, you know, I'm Democrats doing a lifetime him. study myself. I'll, I'll get results <laughs> for you one day. Jacoby doing a lifetime study. <laughs> Go ahead, Lee. <laughs> I was just going to, Jacoby, we need like a whole panel, you know, just. We got this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, let's end on some good news, as our friends over at CityCast Chicago like to say. <clears throat> Looking at you, Jacoby, What's because good? you did a cool interview with a Chicagoan from the West Side. 
who has some good news of his own. Take the last minute to tell us what Matthew Cherry is up to. Hey, shout out to Matthew Cherry, a Chicago native now living in L.A. Back in 2019, he sort of took the Oscar world by storm with his animated short Hair Love, uh, won uh, an Academy Award, and then it went on to be a New York Times bestseller uh, picture book. Uh, it has, gets a lot of play in my family. I have two young nieces by the name of Zion, and uh, who is seven, nice. and Zuri, who is five. And Zuri is the title character in Hair Love, and that universe has been expanded now on a Max animated series called Young Love. I've gotten a chance to watch the first few episodes, and you follow uh, young Zuri, you follow Angela, Steven, uh, uh, you follow Angela, uh, voiced by Issa Rae, Steven, voiced by Kia Cuddy, and, and you you learn what's going on in their world as they're on the west side of Chicago. Issa Rae stays busy these days. Oh my days. God, always working. <laughs> Taking always all the working. roles, Barbie, like, everything. Kiki Palmer, Io, y'all get y'all back. Get y'all back. <laughs> and, and so Matthew is really excited because he he modeled their home after his grandmother's house in Garfield Park. He, oh, he's I wanted to expand this story, and now. Uh, it, it, it's really giving like sitcom vibes. Like it's mm -hmm. not necessarily a children's show. It's not necessarily just for adults. Like a lot of Max, yeah. you know, animated series. Or I'm looking at you, Harley Quinn. Um, but it 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 feels like a, a family matters type yeah. joint when, when you're sitting down. I can't wait to see that. We'll leave it there. That is it for the weekly news recap. We covered a lot. <laughs> Shout out to the gang here in studio and Lee. Uh, my thanks to Lee John Greco of Crane Chicago Business, Jacoby Cochran of CityCast Chicago, and Mick Dumkey of Block Club Chicago. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Happy fall. You are the best. <laughs> this episode of Reset was produced by Andrea Guthman and edited by Meha Ahmed and Brenda Ruiz. That'll do it for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Have a great weekend and remember to look out for our bonus podcast tomorrow morning. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.